Welcome to this mini-series of podcasts about the Quran. I'm Nikolai Sinai of the University of Oxford and I'm grateful to the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council for supporting the production of these four short talks. Our last episode took a look at the Quranic proclamation's historical environment. In this episode we will examine more closely how the Quran actually interacts with this environment, how it reshapes some of the ideas and narratives that circulated in it. As we saw in the last episode, the Quran presupposes that its original recipients would have possessed considerable familiarity with Jewish and Christian traditions, which the Quran claims both to confirm and to clarify. So in interpreting a given Quranic passage, one would naturally look to reconstruct as fully as possible what cultural background knowledge of the issues that are raised in that passage the Quran's addressees might have possessed. And we could then place the Quran against this background and trace out the peculiar contours of what it is saying and, and thereby gain a precise understanding of what is historically distinctive about Quranic doctrine or Quranic law. Unfortunately, this is not always easy in practice because we do not have historical documents that provide us with direct access to the cultural, social and religious state of affairs in early 7th century Mecca and Medina. Uh, so we do not, for example, have manuscript finds from 7th century Western Arabia that document the literature that was read and copied by Jews and Christians there. Uh, and regarding the beliefs and practices of the Meccan pagans, uh, our main sources other than the Quran are Islamic texts that are considerably later than the Quran, texts from the 8th and 9th centuries whose view of pre-Islamic Arabian paganism was shaped by polemical and apologetic concerns and may in part simply be due to retrospective speculation. So we cannot assume to have direct access to the religious beliefs and practices of the Quran's original audience or audiences. Instead, we are forced to try to approximate this background as best we can. And the way to go about doing this is to compare the Quran with as large a spectrum of pre-Quranic texts as possible. So including, for instance, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament in their various versions and translations, but also including post-biblical commentaries uh, and sermons and religious poetry. This will often yield striking parallels and by way of an example I would like to discuss an episode from the life of Abraham as retold by the Quran. The episode consists in a dispute between Abraham and his father and his contemporaries about their worship of idols, for which they are berated by Abraham who is presented in the Quran as an exemplary monotheist. According to a passage in Surah 21, Abraham even goes so far as to destroy these idols in order to demonstrate their powerlessness. Abraham announces, by God I shall outwit your idols after you have turned your backs and he then smashes the idols to pieces, uh, except for a big one that they had. Abraham's compatriots then return and ask, have you done this to our gods Abraham? Upon which Abraham blames the havoc that he has wreaked on the one idol that he has spared. This big one has done it, ask them, meaning ask the idols, if they're able to speak. But of course the idols aren't able to speak and Abraham's compatriots actually admit this. They were confounded and said, you know that they cannot speak. Um, so Abraham's opponents have effectively conceded the impotence of the idols they worship and Abraham drives this home by saying, do you worship besides God something that cannot benefit or harm you at all? This story from the life of Abraham is not found in the Bible. Um, as was pointed out already in the 19th century by the German scholar Abraham Geiger, the Quranic narrative's closest parallel occurs in a Jewish commentary on the book of Genesis, a commentary that is written in a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic and is normally dated to the 5th century of the Common Era, so well before the Quran. 
This commentary, which is known by the title Genesis Rabbah, explains that Abraham's father Terach worshipped idols and sold them and that he once went away somewhere and left Abraham to sell idols in his stead. Abraham is then said to have broken the idols of his father with a staff and to have put the staff in the hand of the biggest of them. When his father comes back and uh, surveys the scene of destruction, he asks Abraham who has done this to them and Abraham then gives the following explanation. How can I deny it to you? A woman came carrying a bowl of flour and said to me, here, offer it to them. I offered it to them and one idol said, I will eat first. And another said, I will eat first. Then this one, the biggest of them, took a staff and broke them. Abraham's story is obviously preposterous and it succeeds in causing Terach to betray that he is perfectly aware that the idols he venerates and sells are really completely powerless. Why are you mystifying me? He says to Abraham, do these idols have any knowledge? Upon which Abraham retorts, do your ears not hear what your own mouth says? So very much like the Quranic account, this Jewish text presents Abraham as playing a sort of educational prank on his people, or specifically on his father, um, that flushes out the fact that his father is well aware that the worship of handmade idols is nonsensical. Both the Quran and the Jewish text are in agreement that idolatry is ultimately inconsistent. To be sure, there are some differences between the two accounts. Um, neither the Quranic passage from Surah 21 that we've examined, nor a similar one from Surah 37, explicitly mentions the staff that Abraham uses to smash the idols, according to the Jewish narrative. And while the Jewish text has the climactic confrontation following the destruction of the idols take place between Abraham and his father alone, the Quran pits Abraham against an entire collective. But the general resemblance of the two narratives is nonetheless indisputable, I think. And um, there's also important overlap in crucial details. Both the Quran and Genesis Rabbah make special mention of the biggest idol of the lot. And in both texts, a very similar question is asked after the destruction of the idols is discovered. According to the Quran, Abraham's people say, who has done this to our gods? Man fa'ala in Arabic. While the uh, Jewish text has Abraham's father inquire, who has done this to them? Man kaven in Aramaic. Uh, it also deserves to be noted that the second Quranic retelling of Abraham's destruction of the idols, which is found in another surah, in surah 37, includes a verse that is really only fully intelligible in light of the pre-Quranic parallel that we've just examined. In this other Quranic passage, Abraham, after having been left alone with the idols, asks them, will you not eat? Uh, which is obviously an echo of the pivotal importance that eating plays in the Jewish narrative, where Abraham mischievously tells his father that the idols have quarreled over who had the right to eat first. Uh, it being clearly understood both by Abraham and by his father that idols don't eat. The episode of Abraham's destruction of the idols makes it very clear, I think, that pre-Quranic sources in languages other than Arabic bear a lot of relevance for understanding the cultural horizon addressed by the Quran. And once again, it deserves to be highlighted that we shouldn't imagine the Quran to be engaged in secretive borrowing here, as if it were hoping not to get caught. Uh, instead, it seems far more likely that the Quran's addressees were expected to be perfectly aware that surahs 21 and 37 retell a story about Abraham that was generally known in the Quranic milieu. But despite the fact that the Jewish commentary that we've examined exhibits a number of striking overlaps with the Quran, it would be rash to infer that the Quranic audience must therefore have been familiar with the very passage that I've quoted from Genesis Rabbah. Rather, it seems perfectly possible that the story of Abraham's destruction of the idols 
reached the Quranic audience not in Hebrew and Aramaic uh, but in Arabic and that it reached them not through a written text that is still available to us but by means of oral storytelling. So the immediate antecedents of the Quranic version of the story, um, the precise shape in which the story would have been known to the Quran's original addressees, is something that we can at most reconstruct in a hypothetical fashion. Uh, we simply do not have an unfiltered first-hand record of how inhabitants of pre-Quranic Mecca and Medina narrated the life of Abraham. Our Abrahamic case study provides a useful occasion to comment on an evident difference between the kind of Quranic scholarship that is conducted at Western universities on the one hand and Quranic scholarship in a more traditional Islamic vein on the other. This contrast is not necessarily a contrast between Muslim and non-Muslim approaches to the text because there's certainly cutting-edge research on the Quran done in English or French, for example, um, whose authors happen to be Muslim but who are not therefore approaching the Quran from a different vantage point than their Christian, Jewish or agnostic colleagues. But it is true that traditional Islamic scholarship of the kind that is still conducted to a high standard at universities in the Islamic world is and has been much less interested than modern Western scholarship in embedding the Quran within a rich spectrum of Jewish and Christian texts in languages other than Arabic. Uh, there are a number of reasons for this. One is certainly that classical Islamic Quran scholarship operates virtually exclusively in Arabic. Um, a medieval exegete of the Quran would have been expected to have a robust command of classical Arabic, which is certainly a very important skill to have, but he would not have been expected to possess the same level of proficiency in other languages that may have been important in the Quran's historical milieu. Uh, it is true that there's one very exciting pre-modern commentary on the Quran that does make ample use of the Bible, but even this work consults the Bible in an Arabic translation. So the idea that it might be important for students of the Quran to learn Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic doesn't have a very strong precedent in medieval Islamic scholarship. A second reason for why the kind of intertextual comparison that we've engaged in earlier is far more popular at Western universities than at many universities in the Islamic world is, is certainly the fear that when scholars juxtapose the Quran with Jewish and Christian literature, the main interest is really only to show that the Quran is an uninteresting and inferior carbon copy of earlier sources. This fear isn't entirely unfounded, insofar as many of the early pioneers of Quranic studies in Europe didn't hesitate to describe parallels of the sort that we've looked at above in terms of Muhammad replicating or unwittingly distorting earlier traditions. And of course, that implies a view of the Quran's authorship that conflicts with the Islamic belief that the Quran is the revealed word of God, not the human word of Muhammad. So it is perhaps understandable that a reading of the Quran in light of material in Hebrew, Greek or Aramaic can trigger a certain fear of reductionism. But I think current research shows a very decisive turn away from such reductionism. What my colleagues and I are generally interested in when we compare, say, the Quranic Abraham narratives with Jewish or Christian or other precedents is to gain a better understanding of what is distinctive about the Quranic presentation. Because a close comparative reading will not only reveal important similarities, but can also assist in discovering crucial differences between the Quran and earlier literature. And these differences often give us a much better sense of the peculiar theological message that the Quran is attempting to convey. One example for such a potentially significant difference would be the fact that, according to the Quran, the confrontation that ensues 
after Abraham's destruction of the idols, takes place between Abraham and his entire people, not just between Abraham and his father. And by retelling the narrative in this particular way, the Quran aligns Abraham with other past messengers of God and also with the prophet Muhammad, all of whom are, de are depicted in the Quran as confronting a collective audience of unbelievers. So it is a very conspicuous feature of what we might call the Quran's theology of history, that there are strong typological correspondences between the various prophets and messengers that have appeared throughout human history. Another example for the presence of theologically significant variance between Quranic and pre-Quranic narratives is provided by a brief passage in Surah 10, which describes how Pharaoh and his army pursued the Israelites through the sea after their exodus from Egypt. And I would like to conclude this talk by examining this text in a bit more detail. The passage recounts how Pharaoh, who is about to drown in the returning waters of the sea, declares himself to believe, and I quote, that there is no God except the one in whom the Israelites believe. And Pharaoh proclaims himself to be one of those who submit to God. Um, he calls himself a Muslim, to use the Arabic term. As I argue in a forthcoming article, this passage has a precursor in a Jewish tradition that it uses the figure of Pharaoh in order to illustrate the awesome power of repentance, Kor Hachuva in Hebrew. Even a perfect villain like Pharaoh, this earlier Jewish tradition holds, survived the just punishment that he had coming because he repented at the very last moment before his impending death. But the Quranic presentation strikingly diverges from this view. According to the Quran, Pharaoh's repentance came too late. The answer that he receives from God in the Quran is, now, and you committed rebellion before, and were one of those causing corruption. The Quran then goes on to imply that it was not Pharaoh as a living person who was delivered, but only his lifeless body. So in placing the Pharaoh passage from Surah 10 against the background of earlier Judeo-Christian tradition, we observe a tangible discrepancy between the Quranic version and its likely antecedent. Uh, incidentally, we may note that such a discrepancy is entirely in keeping with the Quran's self-characterization as providing both a confirmation and a clarification of Jewish and Christian traditions. Now, the interesting question is what it means for the Quran to tell the story differently. Of course, a believer in the Quran's revelatory origin might simply respond by saying that the Quran tells the story as it really happened. That may be so, um, although I'm personally agnostic as to whether there ever was a pharaoh who pursued Moses and the Israelites through the sea and, and whether or not he drowned. But even if one were to assume that the Quran is simply setting the historical record straight, it seems likely that this serves some doctrinal or theological purpose. After all, the Quran very clearly does not aspire to be simply a collection of true historical facts. The Quran reminds its hearers of certain events in the past because these events have a theological significance to the Quran's hearers in the present. In the case under discussion, this significance is illuminated by a number of Quranic statements, which are found both in Surah 10 and elsewhere, to the effect that even the most incorrigible unbelievers will ultimately come to believe, namely when they are faced with God's overpowering punishment. But just as there is no great merit in acknowledging the existence of an earthquake when it hits you, so the Quran insists that believing only at this point when God's punishment has already begun to materialize and to unfold is, is simply too late. So the Quran is in principled theological disagreement with the idea that repentance has a virtually unconditional efficacy and power, uh, which is the theological point that the story of Pharaoh's repentance seems to have uh, exemplified in the Jewish tradition. 
So the reason why the story is told differently in the Quran is not only to correct the historical record, but also, and most importantly, to correct the theological record. According to the Quran, humans are bidden to make an existential choice between belief and unbelief. And this choice needs to be made before belief has become empirically confirmed fact. What I have tried to illustrate with this brief discussion of Pharaoh's repentance is that a careful comparison between the Quran and earlier traditions and texts allows us to gain a more nuanced understanding of the Quran's own theological profile. And it seems to me that both scholars who are committed to the Quran as divine revelation and scholars who do not share this commitment might be equally interested in tracing out the distinctive contours of Quranic theology in this way. In any case, there's no reason to be overly worried that juxtaposing the Quran with earlier texts and traditions must necessarily result in a reductive view of the Quran in seeing the Quran as a mere echo or replica of these earlier traditions.